Well, welcome back to the 39th edition of Living a Whole Christian Life. It's Dr. Jim Schrader, and I hope all of you are doing well today as we continue our focus on the social dimension of our being, and again, in the social rooms of the home of our own Christian lives. So today we're going to focus on God's design of communication in the world. We're going to talk about this for you podcasts going forward and how important communication is, but the unique ways that we are either effective or not effective according to God's design and using not just what we say, not just the language and the words, but our nonverbal communication and even just our presence in general. So if we go back to the year of 1963, there were two researchers by the name of Lyman Wynn and Margaret Singer who introduced the concept of communication deviance. And communication deviance, or we often call CD, is a pattern of interaction or communication that's characterized by kind of a sense of vagueness or constant interrupting or statements that lack real closure that are kind of open-ended and confusing or even irrelevant comments. And kind of all that pulled together, the idea behind communication deviance is that it's it's the opposite of clear, concise, you know, empathetic communication. And, you know, for all of you who have experienced this, and we all do this sometimes at some level, when you're in the midst of kind of like communication that is very deviant from what we'd say is the healthy form, it just often not only doesn't make sense, but it can be very psychologically controlling. And so they introduced this idea, and we'll talk about kind of why this is really important. But around the same time, another area of research began to kind of look at what's called expressed emotion, or EE. And EE is, you know, communication that's characterized by hostile and critical means of feedback, times when parents maybe especially get really emotionally involved and even minor matters, not just parents, of course, but it could be spouses or significant others or even in the workplace, EE is the sense that emotion comes with a lot of intensity and not really when it needs to. But even any given point, even minor matters can kind of cause this intensity, this volume, and this edginess to rise up. So what's really critical, what we're finding research all the way back to the 60s, is that when you look at EE, again, expressed emotion, and you look at CD, communication deviance, The sad reality is that we were finding, and we continue to find research today, that alone and even together especially, the more that these occur as patterns of communication in our homes and in our lives, the greater risk that our kids and all of us in the family actually have risk of psychological disorders, whether depression, anxiety, but including even psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. And so what we're finding, and this is this was kind of a groundbreaking initial study back in the 60s when they discovered this, is they used to just think that, oh, conditions like schizophrenia, for example, were purely driven by genetics or something biologically went wrong. But over time, we have recognized that the social dimension, the way that we communicate specifically, has tremendous impact on our well-being and our health and just everything in general that relates to what we want in life. And so this, as we kind of went through the decades, we understood that, again, God creates and ordains this world. It really puts a premium on how we speak to others, on how we talk to others. And like everything else you know, in this podcast, the recognition is that sometimes we talk to others in ways that we honestly don't want to. I can think of myself as a father so many times over the years, the way I wanted to say something or should have said something was not the way I actually did say something. And so... When you recognize that, the question is, we go all the way back to that previous podcast on the social dimension, 
How well then am I trying to use, even when I've made mistakes, empathy, responsiveness, and then growth and reflection, those three keys, those three hallmarks of the golden rule, how then am I using that in my communication here, right? And as I said before, the great thing about all this area of the social dimension is it doesn't matter if you're introverted, extroverted, it doesn't matter how outgoing you are, how little you say, all of these principles apply. But the reality is that communication patterns often are recreated over and over throughout the generations. I mean, I think all of you listening today, consider how your parents and even their parents, of course, your grandparents, communicated themselves. And there's a recognition that while sometimes we do choose very consciously to take a different course, very often we fall back into the same patterns that generations have before. Unless, unless, again, we are very intentional and we are very recognizing of the way that patterns are not healthy. And I'll talk about this later here. So as you reflect on your own experience in your own home, and by the way, it was interesting, you know, growing up, I had two parents who are very outgoing, very strong-willed, very talkative people. I think that they're listening to this podcast. Hi, mom and dad. I think you recognize that in yourselves. But, you know, it was interesting as I was hearing the experiences of others I was growing up with, my peers or whatever, I came to recognize that many households looked nothing like that, right? That had maybe had two parents who were much quieter, much more reserved, or maybe one parent who seemed to kind of dominate the scene in regards to kind of what occurred communication-wise, and another parent that went very silent. But regardless of where you grew up and, and kind of just the sense of how, you know, those patterns were laid out, we all really have two key questions to ask as we go forward and using our communication as God would design. The first is, it goes back to the same thing we've been talking about. How well does my communication pattern patterns adhere to the golden rule? How well in what I say, and not just what I say, but what I non-verbally communicate, how well does that honor treating others as I would like to be treated? And very often we find that, again, it's not, I tell this all the time when I'm working with families in session or even younger kids, you can be angry and that is totally your right. You have every right in the world to feel angry about the things that you're frustrated about for whatever reason. And I think that it's important to say that because sometimes when we talk about changing patterns of communication, even the old and young get the message that, oh, well, are you saying I can't feel angry or I can't feel jealous? No, absolutely not. In fact, one of the worst things you can do is to deny those feelings, which probably gives rise to even worse communication later on. So the issue is not how we feel. The issue is, does our communication in responding to that still adhere to the golden rule? And, you know, we will talk more and more about I statements versus you statements. I statements, I think we may have mentioned even before, are expressing I feel blank, I feel frustrated because of this situation versus you statements are putting the blame, well, you make me feel like this, you make me whatever, right? And so... It's not the emotion behind the communication that's the issue. It's, again, how do we interact around it? How do we take that forward that really drives this first question about, you know, our communication adhering to the golden rule? The second is, and this is a very simple question, but boy, it's difficult execution, is simply how effective is it? By effective, what I mean is that if you're a parent listening out there, just because you might get compliance in the moment, you know, your kid finally does what you want them to do, even though it might have been 10 times later after you said it, or just because you're being honest, doesn't necessarily mean that we as parents are being effective ultimately in facilitating the pursuit of holiness, right? 
And I think actually this is one of the things that people have revolted against prior generations where there was a very, very authoritarian style in many households. And in the moment, this was often fathers, but it wasn't just fathers. Those who were growing up in prior generations would acknowledge that they were compliant because frankly, they were really scared of their dad, right? They were scared that if they didn't do the right thing, then that would lead to whippings or whatever else like that. But they were also scared of the level of communication. And so many times, you know, compliance seemed to happen in the moment, even if later on there were ways that, you know, these children were going behind their parents' backs. But the reality is that while honesty and compliance, I'm not saying those aren't variables for us to consider and that aren't important in some way, the real question is that how are we communicating to each other to facilitate, again, the pursuit of holiness, right? Again, the unified pursuit of health, harmony, happiness, and heaven. And very often, I think that people love communication. Think about, you know, online and think about even like talk radio and other other types of communication. I mean, there's a whole contingent of people that really love hearing things just being laid out like as strong and emphatic as possible, right? And I know that we all kind of feel good sometimes if it supports our views and we love someone coming down really hard, But I ask this question, ultimately, how effective is that communication actually, right? Maybe what's being said is truthful, and that's important. But at the end of the day, all of our communication should be geared towards helping each person and each family and each community truly pursue the idea of holiness. So as we're talking about this, and as it relates to CD and EE and styles of communication, it's it's interesting to know that years ago, one of the most well-known marriage researchers in the country and probably in the world, began talking about what he called the four horsemen. And these were negative patterns of communication that, again, occur oftentimes in marriage. But the more that they occur, the worse these relationships become. And so the first of the four horsemen is what's called criticism. Criticism is unique from a complaint in that criticism is really going after critiquing a person for a specific quality or who they are in general, not you know, really communicating a complaint about the situation. So here's an example. Like, let's say you, you know, work with your significant other and agreed that he would clean up the kitchen while you put the kids to bed or whatever. And you come downstairs and the kitchen's not clean. And he hasn't really done that. If you look at him and you call him a slob because of what's happened, um, and that's kind of repeatedly what you're doing, you're criticizing him as a person, which ultimately is not really an effective way of communicating so that both people come to the same place and just prove things in general. But versus a complaint, which says, hey, I thought that we agreed if I put the kids to bed and then you would do, you know, the kitchen, a complaint really focuses on the situation. And so what Gottman found is that the more we critique a person, um, especially the way we go about that versus, you know, just kind of honor the situation as it is, um, the more criticism really causes problems. The second of the four horsemen is defensiveness. And I have to say myself, this is probably the one I struggle with the most, but defensiveness is when someone brings something to you that's legitimate, even if you disagree or you don't think it's perfectly accurate, and you rise up against them. Like, how dare you say this, right? How dare you even accuse me of this? How dare you bring this to me? Even again, if it's very reasonable. And as a part of rising up, then you also often reactively blame the other person. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't, whatever, ABC, right? So defensiveness kind of is the sense of like, I'm rising up against what I probably know is at least partially true, but I'm not willing to acknowledge that. And I get very emotional about it. 
The third is what's called stonewalling. And stonewalling is kind of what it sounds like, is that you put up a wall, whether it's a physical wall, as if you just like leave a conversation in the middle and go out walking out the door or the room, or it's a psychological wall and you just shut down. And I tell people it's very different than saying to someone, hey, this is kind of getting intense for me. Do you care? I need, I need to take a break for a few minutes or even longer. I'll come back to this. And I really promised you know, to do that, but I need a break. That's different than stonewalling. Stonewalling is just simply shutting something down that, again, is legitimate in the way that you communicate. And it is really just kind of ending the opportunity for collaboration, cooperation. And finally, the, the fourth horseman is what he called contempt. And he, he really said, he really had a sense that contempt is the worst of all of them. Because in essence, when you're contemptuous towards a person, you're showing disgust of them. Whether it's through like eye rolling or biting sarcasm or mockery or just kind of ill-conceived humor. Contempt just basically says, I'm kind of just disgusted with who you are and what you're about. And in doing so, it really degrades the other person. So through all the four horsemen, again, and I think all of us listening have to ask ourselves, where do we find ourselves here? It's not that we won't do this, unfortunately, at some point in our lives, but the more we criticize, the more we're defensive, the more we stonewall, and the more we you know, show contempt, what Gottman found was the worse our relationships get, right? We can do all sorts of nice things for people. We can really help them out in many ways. We can have great motives in our relationships. But if our communication patterns really increase in these areas, the likelihood of the relationship being satisfying and mutual is really limited, and the likelihood of the relationship ultimately ending um, is much, much greater. So here's where, again, we come to the intersection of research and God's design, which indicates that, and I think this is a really big key for us to consider today, that what we say and do around others, especially our kids, probably impacts people as much or even more than what we say and do for others, again, especially for our kids. I really want to emphasize that. Very often we think, well, if I just do a lot of good things and I help people out and I take care of their needs and I, and I just, I really have all the intent to do that, that'll take care of the rest of it, right? I think that even in our church, we often feel like and I talked about this before, well, if I volunteer for this function, this function, and I give to the church, and I, I look out for all sorts of ministries, that'll take care of me, God. Even if my communication, even if the way that I relate to other people is really not according to God's design. And the challenge of this, and I know this is a hard message, but the challenge is that it just doesn't play out to be true. That whether we like it or not, the way that we talk to others, the way that we non-verbally communicate to others has an incredible power in this world. Again, this power has been ordained by God who created the sense of us being social beings and in all his infinite wisdom. And sometimes I have to be honest, the wisdom is even difficult to understand. He wanted these interactions to be very sacred. Like I, I really believe that. He really wanted the interactions that we had with others to be sacred and intimate in the way that they should be, according to our role and his design. And so you think about this as parents and other people in general. We spend thousands of hours doing all sorts of things. I mean, how many hours have I spent shelling my kids to practice in the last 10 years? But have you ever wondered how much time do we spend making sure that our communication patterns are both empathetic and effective? 
that might sound like a funny question to you because it's not like many of us are out there working on our communication patterns. But the reality is that we should be. I mean, I think that there's really no way around this is to say that if it is as important as it appears to be, then maybe we all need to have, as adults, some communication groups to help each other kind of refine the ways that we speak and we write and everything else. And I want to just kind of end on this note and think about that in the midst of what might be a seemingly a really big challenge, there really is great promise on, on prioritizing this. And some years ago, you know, I sat down with a married couple and the husband had really grown up where CD, again, communication deviance and, and expressed emotion were the norm. And it wasn't until he got married and he and his wife ventured in the world of parenthood that he realized just how awful the communication patterns had been. For years, their marriage had strained the seams as he and his wife struggled with the unwelcome reality carried over from his youth and the continued reality of the in-laws that remained in those patterns. But as the years evolved and he began to see things could be much different and much better, his focus gradually changed. He set forth really on this rocky, vulnerable road of self-improvement. And it had been, and it still was in many ways, rough, even as much as it had improved. But as I looked at them, as they held hands in my office, and they talked with great hope and passion about their son, I couldn't help but think how much I admired them for the journey that they had undertaken. And for all the astounding things that people do in the world and all the public accolades that people receive, I truly am becoming increasingly convinced that one of the greatest miracles, one of the greatest transformations in life is when people come from difficult situations socially, emotionally, and they, with great intent, like this couple, like this man even in the beginning, start to say, hey, this isn't right. This isn't healthy. And they start to recognize is that the way we choose to speak to others and the way that we choose to speak in accordance with the virtues of prudence and justice and courage and love can truly be one of the greatest gifts that we can give to our kids. I can give them everything that they want in the world. I can give them all the privileges, all the objects of their desire. But that really pales in comparison to the way that I speak with them and the way that I honor the golden rule through the words and through the mannerisms and through everything that I say in their lives. And so that's the hope today that no matter where you came from in your own upbringing, no matter what the generations of communication have looked like in your family, wouldn't it be amazing if you were an instrument of God's peace and love in the way that you intentionally sought out to improve those patterns and to teach your kids to do the same? This is Jim Schrader. Be holy, be whole.